I'm ready to talk some shit. Hello, how is everybody? This is the QTR Podcast. Today is June 23rd, 2020. Welcome this podcast. Before we get started, I must note, I would be remiss if I did not point out that this podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum on Patreon to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out my patrons. I'm going to give you the two rules for the podcast today, and then we're going to get on our way. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver bullion providers at JM Bullion. What does that mean? It means they are the only company that I buy gold and silver from. Why, Chris? Because they support your podcast? Yes, well, that's nice, but also because I prefer to do business with them. I've been buying from them for a couple of months now. I used to buy from a bunch of other sites, and I like Jam Bullion the best. They turn around my orders the quickest. They have a great inventory. They've got a great reputation. They've been in business since, oh, I think almost a decade now. They've done over $3 billion worth of business. And uh, generally, I like the people over there. These two gentlemen that I speak to over there, both of whom are named Rob, seem like very nice guys. And QTR podcast listeners have their own sales rep at JM Bullion. So if you want some VIP service, send out an email to Kathy with a K, Kathy at JMBullion.com, and she will take care of everything that you need. Tell you want a discount and free shipping. Because you listen to the Q-Man and I sent you that way. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. The Sang Lucci Steam Room is one of the best ways out there to track big money coming into the illiquid options market. And oftentimes that telegraphs where equities are going to move. What does all that shit mean that I just said? It means that the Steam Room gives you insight as to where the money is coming into the market oftentimes in nondescript spots so that maybe you can get ahead of a forthcoming move. It's good to know where the big boys are throwing around millions behind the scenes in the options market because many times it's not a fucking coincidence. And oftentimes that precedes moves in the equity. So the Steam Room is a tool that's been around for a decade. It is constantly being improved on. Sang Lucci, Charlie Bathgate, Wall Street Jesus are some OGs that I am friendly with. They are honest people to do business with. And I highly recommend the Steam Room. It's one of those things that could pay for itself very quickly as long as you don't fuck things up on your end and botch the trading, which by the way is a real possibility because I know we are all in fact degenerates. Lucci also offers the 3LT playbook, which are the three rules that he used to become a seven-figure trader, and the Sang Lucci Master Course, which is a financial education for people that are not interested in bullshit, jargon, and nonsense. All of these things are available in my podcast description. This podcast is also brought to you by... My friend Pete Hedgetus over at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is a wonderful day trading community. If you're sitting at home trading on your own during the day, it's always good to surround yourself with a group of people, some new ideas, have a dialogue, have a discourse going on. And The Trader's Path is stocked with a couple of great tools for day traders. First and foremost, they provide daily watch lists. They provide a live daily stream of what they're doing. They provide investor education. So they they might be pointing out names and talking about names that you may not have known about. I know that they made a great call on APT at the end of the week last week. I was talking to Pete about that. Uh, So the guys in his room hopefully did very well on that. Uh, But Pete's an honest guy. He started his service because he got tired of the bullshit and nonsense of other day trading services. They will front run you. They will take your money and not give a fuck about you. And Pete wanted to change that. So that's why he started the trader's path. And that's why I am happy to let people know that the trader's path is a partner and a Patreon of the podcast because they like me and I like them back, motherfuckers. What do you know about that? The links to all of these are in the podcast description. This podcast is also brought to you by, where's the goddamn list? Here it is. Pull it up, idiot. Be prepared. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, Investors Underground, my buddy Nathan over there, Ken R., Chris B., Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Shipping Analyst, Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, and I don't have my full Patreon list, so if you donated since the last podcast, I will make sure that you get your shout out on the next podcast. Trust me. 
This podcast has two rules. The first is I'm not an investment advisor. That's not really a rule, but it means I don't want to hear any bitching and complaining or whining or moaning or praising if things go well. I don't want to hear anything. If you have a problem, speak to your therapist. I am not an SEC registered investment advisor. I'm not a financial advisor. This is not financial advice, etc., etc. This podcast also has a very strict two-drink minimum rule for many reasons, which I have outlined over the course of the last 200 episodes that I've done and have no intention of getting into right now. Most of you I don't have to talk to about the two-drink minimum, but maybe it's your first podcast and you don't understand how things go down. This is going to be, well, it's 6 p.m. now, so this will probably drop around 7 p.m., and I imagine if you're not two drinks deep already, this might not be the podcast of your choosing. In the Venn diagram of my podcast listeners, those who have had two drinks by 7 p.m. and those that have listened to more than one episode, that's a very large shaded portion of the Venn diagram in the middle. Not a lot of people that like this podcast wear bow ties and are out playing squash or croquet right now. That Venn diagram looks very different. I'll post all the Venn diagrams online so you can see them at some point, but that is irrelevant because we're about to get the damn show started. What is the purpose of me spewing verbal diarrhea into a microphone today, you might be asking? Well, I'm very glad that you asked. First and foremost, I am generally stoked that my friend Peter Schiff is going to be back on the Joe Rogan podcast. I just saw that he put a tweet out about that, and he'll be back on Joe Rogan July 14th, so allow me to advertise for my friend. But I'm excited not only because they're my two favorite podcasts in general and worlds will be colliding. I'm excited because the more Peter Schiff we can get out there... First of all, just think about this, all right? You're CNBC or your Fox Business News, and you decide that you don't want to have Peter Schiff on anymore because, well, he doesn't really fit the mainstream narrative, right? I mean, many of you guys know that I started this podcast because the guys that I like listening to, like Bill Fleckenstein and Peter Schiff, weren't getting the play in the mainstream media that I thought that they deserved. I thought the Austrian school needed to have good representation out there, if not for anything else. At least for objective, open dialogue about finance, the markets, capital markets, the macro economy and those things. I mean, how the hell can you have a dialogue or a discourse about anything involving finance if you can't debate the two biggest schools in finance regularly, right? That would be like just having Democrats or just having Republicans, right? If you had the talking points of one of the two political parties without the other ones, well, you wouldn't really have anything to talk about. Regardless of who's right or who's wrong, you can't flesh things out. You can't have any type of dialogue. But that's not the case in finance, where apparently everybody in the financial media, and I'm not just talking about the people that set the programming for these programs. I'm talking about the anchors that are on certain shows, the people that blog on their own, All these people are out there and everybody has just subscribed to the Keynesian ideology. So much so that if you go to school and you take finance or you get a master's degree in finance or an MBA or you get a PhD, you're coming out under the Keynesian umbrella. There's no real acceptance of the Austrian school in the mainstream. You come out thinking that the way that we do things now with the fractional reserve banking model and the central banking model and the 2% inflation targets and Neil Kashkari on 60 Minutes and the whole big fat financial hand job is exactly how things are supposed to be. I mean, think about it. If you were born over the last 20 years or you were born over the last 30 years, anytime since the Greenspan era... That is finance to you. I always talk about the difference between... Well, I don't always talk about it. (laughs) I'm going to talk about it now, though. I don't don't know why I just said that. But I have talked about it, I think, once. And uh, I've heard Peter Schiff bring it up in his podcast. That the, the difference between the way that we funded the wars in the 1950s and the 1960s and how we're funding the 
donut that we have placed on the flat tire of the economy right now are two completely different things. I mean, the government actually, back when the dollar was backed by gold and the government actually needed money, they couldn't just go and print more money. So they had to ask for money from the people. So the government sold war bonds and they asked the country to contribute because back then when money was backed by something tangible and you needed to get productivity, you couldn't just print money off of a fucking printing press. You needed to generate the productivity by getting real money from the people. So you actually needed to get the money that was already in circulation instead of taking money that wasn't in circulation. And you needed to generate the productivity by having people work to do things that the country needed for the war. Now, we are just printing. Could you imagine if in the 50s and in the 60s, we had the quote-unquote technology, as Ben Bernanke called it? I love it. Technology, folks. This reminds me of that photograph of L. Ron Hubbard auditing a tomato plant. It's uh, it's that kind of technology. You know, the kind that doesn't really fucking amount to anything. But <laughs> I just saw that stupid picture last night. This guy hooked a fucking tomato up to an electrometer. One of these stupid fucking things that the Scientologists use. And he plugged the two things into a tomato. And he's standing there looking at the tomato, asking the fucking thing questions, probably. Trying to see if he can put the tomato through a lie detector test. That guy had a lot of problems, but that's a different story. (laughs) But it's technology like that. It's not really technology. It's a cheat code. It's plugging the economy into the Federal Reserve Game Genie. And then mashing a bunch of buttons so that you throw all the programming out of whack. And, you know, you're able to modify and kind of overclock things for now. But eventually the costs will come down the road. So the Keynesian school, however, is widely accepted as finance. For most people, they don't know anything differently. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you've dialed into the Austrian school a little bit and you understand the criticisms of the Fed and you understand certainly why we're skeptical of the Fed. And by we, I mean me as I look around the room and realize there's no one else here but me. But people that are coming out of school now, people that have only been alive for the last 20 years and people that study finance and certainly people on the far left like the geniuses that are pulling down statues of Ulysses L. Grant and Abraham Lincoln right now, those people only think of finance as, hey, the Fed can print unlimited money. I know because I heard this bald guy say it on 60 Minutes, and it wasn't me, although I got no problem with baldness because I'm losing my hair, but I don't really get the 60 Minutes time that Neil Kashkari gets. Big fucking surprise there. But they think that finance is something that can be cured with a printing press. They don't know about what the money supply is. They don't understand the difference between purchasing power. The Fed can't create productivity. Peter Schiff says this all the time, right? The Fed can't create productivity and they can't create purchasing power. That's why if you look at the Fred chart of the dollar's purchasing power, it continues to go way down. And the price of gold, which many people, including myself, believe is real money and will always be real money, continues to go up. Now, again, to go back to a point that I've talked about a million times, when you look at the dollar strength and you're looking at the DXY, which is a fraud currency, the dollar backed by nothing compared to a bunch of other global fraud currencies that are backed by nothing, Yes, the dollar gets stronger and the dollar gets weaker. And there's consequences to all of those things, none of which I feel like talking about right now. But the point is, almost every currency around the world, including the dollar versus gold, is at all-time lows. And all you got to do is take a gold chart in any currency and flip it upside down. And that essentially gives you the strength of that currency priced in gold. You invert a gold chart. Literally, take a gold chart, print it out of your printer, and flip it upside down. And then whatever currency you've got it in, you know, whether it's the yen or the Swiss franc or whatever, that is that currency's strength against gold. And it's very simple. There's a finite supply of gold. And the lower the purchasing power of the fiat currency, the more an ounce of gold becomes worth in that specific currency, which is why the price of gold continues to go up. It's a relatively simple concept. But nobody talks about these things at all in the mainstream media. And the irony is fucking hilarious, too, because all these boneheads that haven't had the Austrians on their shows 
are now about to eat a giant shit burger because not only did many of the things that Peter Schiff predicted happen, I mean, he predicted that there would be QE4. He predicted exactly what's going on. He's predicting that, always been predicting, he's always been a bull on gold. He said, you know, he's been a bull on gold since gold was $300 an ounce. And he's continuing to be a, a bull on gold. And we're going to see gold continue to appreciate because, in my opinion, it's a very simple equation to figure out. The lower the purchasing power of the dollar, the higher the gold goes priced in dollars. And you can look at two charts. You can look at gold on a non-inflation adjusted chart over the last 100 years. And you can look at the purchasing power of the dollar if you put in Fred, F-R-E-D, and then just put dollar purchasing power. You'll see the purchasing power of the dollar collapse and fred is the uh, federal reserves uh chart system the i don't know what it stands for federal reserve erectile dysfunction i'm not sure that's probably not it but it could be it could be because we just don't know what's going on in those buildings so it's cool that peter schiff gets a platform and it's even cooler that joe rogan signs this hundred million dollar deal with spotify right a couple of weeks ago and all of a sudden everybody perks up and they're like wow podcasts are a thing and all of a sudden, all this content that's being purchased, you know, for Netflix and Roku and all of these Apple, all of these companies that are scrounging to get their own exclusive content, Amazon. Now, the lens turns to taking a look at podcasts. And who's the first to go? Of course, Joe Rogan, because it's the most popular podcast in the world right now. He puts out an episode. I was just listening to his episode with uh, Brett Weinstein last night. And... I think in 24 hours or 48 hours, however long that's been out, he's got three, four, five million views. I mean, that blows away network television. I was listening to a podcast this morning where somebody said that the Trump rally uh, last week on Fox News had a record six million or seven million views. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, okay, well, that's the president speaking at a rally, and that's a record breaking amount of views for television. And then I think to myself, wow, like Joe Rogan goes on and talks about scratching his nuts with Eddie Bravo, and that also gets six or seven million views. So I'm thinking, wow, this guy's got the most powerful platform in the world, and everybody knows that now that he signed this big $100 million deal. So Peter Schiff, in essence, takes a fucking jug handle, I'm from New Jersey, takes a jug handle around the mainstream media and just says, thank you for declining to ever have me on. But if you guys, while you guys are busy fucking around with your little show here, that's going to get, you know, 150,000 views today, I'm going to go on Joe Rogan, okay? And the host is going to make a bunch of dick and fart jokes, and we're going to rack up 5 million views overnight. So thanks, but no thanks. And what does this mean? It means that there is a real interest in exactly what Peter is talking about. I mean, not only is there a big anti-Fed movement or an end-the-Fed movement, or as Daniel Martino Booth says, you know, take it down to the studs and rebuild it movement, which I know is what Ron Paul wrote about in a couple of his books. Not only is there that movement, but I just think that there's a thirst in this country for honest dialogue about things. And you absolutely can't have an honest dialogue about finance without looking at the other side of the coin. And this unlimited QE that we're going through is raising a lot of very existential questions for people, many of which I talk about on this show all the time. For instance, why do we have to pay $3.5 billion in taxes every year? That's about what the annual tax revenue is when the Fed can just print $3.5 billion. Well, there's a great question. Who can give me a great explanation for that? Because I haven't heard one yet. And that's really the paradigm that I was talking about before. It's the difference between needing money from the people to for government to be able to meet its budget. And they're not even meeting their budget. It's for them to post the pornographic deficit that they're putting up that would only be slightly worse if they didn't collect tax revenue. It's like the government is, we're so far in debt, the tax revenue is almost an afterthought. But it's that paradigm. What's the difference between doing that and monetizing it? And you hear people say monetize all the time. And monetizing the debt would just mean printing enough money to deal with it. And then again, you pay for it with 
the purchasing power of the money and you pay for it with inflation. So you pay for it a different way. Either way, the everyday person is getting the shit end of the stick in that equation. So it doesn't really matter. But more importantly is why don't we talk about it? And I think that that is one of the most important things that we can do right now because we are really, if you listen to my interview with Danielle DiMartino Booth last week, and I know a lot of you people did, a couple of the stunning things that she said during that interview were that the Fed really doesn't seem to know how inflation works. They don't really seem, I mean, if you listen to her and you take her at her word, the Fed doesn't know how its models work. And the Fed doesn't really know how inflation works. And we talked about this on the last podcast. There was an article I read uh, maybe a month ago that pointed out that the more QE people did, uh, that the more it became deflationary instead of inflationary. So we don't really even know how the Keynesian experiment is going to work. But fucked if you can't go out there and raise questions about it or bring it up because you can't because people are too busy talking about Peloton which got upgraded to $70 per share today so if you turn on CNBC like I just did moments before the podcast there's not some great existential ideological debate about monetary policy and the long-term consequences of what we're doing there's a debate about whether Peloton belongs at 58 or 62 it's like well fuck Who cares if the bedrock of the entire thing is just a giant mess? What does it matter? You know, you can take your Peloton and you can just ride it off a cliff at that point because that's about as good of a use as it's going to be to you when the dollar turns into a slice of fucking Swiss cheese from ShopRite. So I was glad to see that Peter Schiff is going to get a platform on the world's best podcast and let that be a lesson to you in the financial media. You guys think you're doing yourselves this big favor by not having him on. And people of his ilk, too. It's not just him that I want to hear from. I want to hear from Jim Grant. How come I get to hear from Dave Portnoy five days a week? Which I don't mind. Got no beef with Dave Portnoy. But why do I get to hear from him five times a week, but I don't get to hear from guys like Jim Grant or Jim Chanos often? I mean, the two of them are widely accepted and well-respected in the industry, and they are calculated thinkers, and they're smart people, and they have great reputations. How come I don't get to hear from them often? Why don't I see Jim Grant once a week on CNBC providing the counterpoint? Why don't I see Bill Fleckenstein on CNBC providing the counterpoint or Peter Schiff? I just don't understand what favor the networks think that they're doing the viewing audience, who has essentially turned into zombies at this point if they are buying into the Keynesian bullshit, or their network, because I think they would get better ratings if they embraced the fact that people want to hear from people with other opinions. And you don't even have to go outside of the network, just give Guy Adami his own show. I mean, Guy Adami comes out and says it like it is and has addressed these things before, but you can't get it from him in a 30-second clip and fast money when you're asking whether or not he has a buy rating or an extreme buy rating on something. (laughs) So the point is I'm happy for my friend, and one of the reasons we need to encourage dialogue is look what happened this week with Wirecard and last week with Wirecard. Short sellers in general are basically in the same basket as Austrian school people. They don't get a lot of play on news networks. They're widely laughed at, and they are basically swimming against the stream at all time. You have to think about this. If you're a short seller, the system is set up essentially to make life as difficult as possible for you. I mean, you have a exchange that has been rigged to only go up that is being rigged by the Federal Reserve and companies that have disclosure requirements that continue to get looser and looser and looser that now have access to more and more and more debt to try to lever up and to try to save themselves when they're not doing anything productive and they're not generating any cash And if you're a short seller, you have to fight not only a garbage management team or perhaps a fraudulent company 
that has access to the capital markets that provide them with a perverse amount of liquidity that they don't deserve and the ability to go out and sell stock for as long as they want without, in Wirecard's case, even confirming their cash balances. Okay, the game is so stacked against short sellers. And then when you do finally think you're in the spot to put on the short, your risk is infinite and your potential upside is only 100%. So if you're a short seller, you are perpetually pushing this giant rock up a hill. But why do people do it? Do they do it because they just like getting punted in the balls? There's some kind of sick masochistic vibe to it, you know? Maybe some of the famous short sellers go home and they just walk on hot coals and ask uh, their mistresses to smack them in the face repeatedly. Well, that could be a theory. I haven't talked to these guys about their personal lives. But more likely is the fact that they understand that the system, as fucked up as it is, still provides opportunities to go out and catch bold-faced frauds and make some money in the process, which is really one of the rewards for many short sellers, is you're pointing out gaping inefficiencies all the way to extraordinary frauds oftentimes, and you can make money doing it. So it is a ethical thing to do. You're helping rid the market of turds, which are just floating everywhere that you can see. So every once in a while, a short seller gets a gets to flush one and the rest of them remain floating. That'd be a good new Buffett analog, wouldn't it? If, when, time, when, when the tide goes out, we see who's swimming naked. We have to come up with an analogy involving a toilet bowl and a bunch of turds floating around and then one finally being flushed by short sellers. But the point is, if you can find yourself a turd to flush, uh, you can be rewarded with it monetarily if you get ahead of it. And if you can convince the market that your research is second to none and is factual and accurate. And if you follow a lot of short sellers, what you'll notice about them, similar to what you would notice about Austrian economists, is that they're oftentimes exceptionally intelligent. They are not market novices. They have read every single thing that the company has put out. They've read every 10K. They've read every proxy statement. They've listened to every conference call. They've read every transcript. They know a lot of the businesses oftentimes better than the business owners know the businesses. Just like oftentimes a Austrian economists can sit down and tell you why the CPI numbers are fucked up like Danielle did on the last podcast or why the PCE numbers are fucked up. And those that are following the Keynesian flow and swimming downstream just cling to the CPI number as though that is the end-all, be-all, the number handed down from God himself and etched into the Ark of the Covenant because that is the CPI, the almighty CPI. Like most of the macroeconomic data gets revised fucking three days later anyways. You know, short sellers often find that when they dig into these companies, under the surface, a lot of them are just dog shit. And so how can you go out and willingly get long a pile of crap and just hope that it continues to pump like many stocks do? Thank you to the Fed that has continued to allow that. Or what do you do? Do you go out and you try to explain your reasoning to people and hope that the exchanges or the auditors or whoever follow suit and realize that you have in fact found a turd that is suitable for flushing. Now, I use the word there, reason, and there isn't much reason anymore in the stock market. It just isn't out there. And the more the Fed rigs the market, the less reason there is. Just like the gold chart in dollars that you can flip upside down, if you were to make a chart of Fed interventions in the market and that line was going from the bottom left corner to the upper right corner and then you flipped that upside down, on the uh, x-axis, that would be a chart of how much reason there is. Because the more and more the game gets rigged, the weirder and weirder market psychology becomes until you eventually just hit this point of fucking entropy where there really is no market psychology because every single string that could be pulled is being pulled. And that, I think, is what's next. Not just with more QE, but with the Fed possibly buying stocks in the future. I mean, this is kind of what we're seeing in Japan, right? You just see the market trade sideways and you have stagflation for 20 years. 
And that's essentially a product of things not being able to be rigged any further than they're being rigged. But it's important to give short sellers a platform and a voice. Because in the case of Wirecard, listen, I talked to somebody about Wirecard like six years ago. I remember starting, just starting at my last job, which was probably six and a half years ago. And I remember it it had to be early on because it was before we had remodeled our office. And I remember taking a phone call with a friend of mine who's a well-known hedge fund manager who had mentioned Wirecard to me but wasn't really involved in it and wasn't doing anything public with it but said hey you know there's this German company and everybody kind of knows it's a fraud he actually also interestingly enough he mentioned my medics to me like a year after that too he was very very early on both names but he said hey listen there's this German company and we all know it's a fraud but we you know they have the support of the government they have the support of the regulators and here we are six years later And we find out that the cash isn't real, okay? Now, if there was ever a reason to doubt the auditing process or the process that is undergone by public companies right now, and again, going back to what I said earlier, they really have it good, right? They're swimming downstream if you're a public company or you're along. You have the wind at your back. Well, how do I know you have the wind at your back? Because if you can operate for a half fucking decade with a fake cash balance in the bank, somebody isn't doing their fucking job, okay? I know oftentimes I've said, well, an audit isn't what most people think that an audit is. I understand that because I've worked with short sellers and I've done research and also I worked at a public company that underwent an audit. So I got, I wasn't involved in it, but I watched how it took place on the daily. And, you know, it was a bunch of young kids in their 20s. And I saw that the company, in most cases, the company winds up providing a lot of the information for an audit. An auditor isn't going through individual journal entries and accounting for every single candy bar that leaves the fucking vending machine in the break room. A lot of what an auditor does is provided to them by the company. And if you ever want to look for a red flag, by the way, in a company, you can see that the company, maybe their market cap or the size of the company doesn't really change, but their audit fees skyrocket. And then obviously, if an auditor resigns or there's a lot of auditor changes, that's also a red flag. But if it costs a company $3 million in audit fees one year and nothing material changes, there's no giant merger. And then the next year, the audit fees are $6 million, that's a red flag. And you can usually get the audit fees and all of the information related to the audit in a company's proxy statement, FYI. But how do you miss the fact that $2 billion in cash doesn't exist? This is a huge deal and it is a huge failure and it goes to show you why we need skeptics and people that can pull the curtain back in this industry. And funnily enough, I don't know if funnily is a word, but interestingly enough, and also funnily, funnily enough, Chanos tweeted out a couple of days ago that one of these German fucks, the COO or whatever, was a flight risk. You know, they said, Wirecard being looked at, being probed, and Chanos wrote, well, these guys are all flight risks. And here we are today, we find out, I think it was the COO just picked up from Germany and flew to the Philippines. Thank you very much. And then, of course, releases a statement like, well, this has nothing to do with the ongoing investigation and I'm happy to provide any documents. (laughs) This is what's fucked up, all right? The fake cash was in the bank for a half decade and now this motherfucker's sitting on a beach in the Philippines trying to find the worm at the bottom of a tequila bottle, probably getting massaged by two workers out on the beach while he watches the waves crash, like Hans Gruber says in Die Hard. By then, we'll be sitting on a beach earning 4%. Almost as fucking annoying as that this morning was three seconds after I saw the news headline that Marcus Braun, who was the CEO, had been arrested, I saw a second headline that he was out on bail. Thank you very much. He posted $5 million in bail. Here's a fucking clue. If you arrest a guy for committing billions of dollars worth of fraud, maybe don't set his bail at $5 million because I think he's going to have it. 
Just my two cents. You know, I'm just spitballing here, folks. But if you go out and you commit a fraud and you fake that there's $2 billion in the bank, among other frauds that may have been committed at this company, I don't really know the details of it, and you pocket, let's say, $100 million as a result or whatever this guy is worth, and then you get arrested, and then they set your bail at $5 million, now you're out of jail after you've been arrested and you still got $95 million left. Something about that is not working properly. You can't go and then commit fraud to make yourself rich and then settle with the SEC for a portion of what you stole and bail yourself out with a portion of what you stole and just net-net leave the whole situation with cash. But many times that's often what happens and it's just really another punt in the balls to short sellers because after you know, maybe you have taken the trade off and you're hoping for real justice in a lot of these cases. It almost never happens. I mean, Madoff was an exception. The guys from Enron were an exception. I don't know what's going to happen to Marcus Braun, but there have been an unnamed amount, uh, a massive number of frauds that have been uncovered where the CEOs have just gotten a slap on the wrist. Shareholders always almost always in those instances lose everything. The stock goes to zero, but the money that the insiders took while they were executives of the companies and the ways that they enriched themselves when they were participating in wrongdoing, well, they get to keep that. That's just another reason the whole system is fucked up and we need guys like Jim Chanos on television. We need skeptics like Jim Grant. So we should be encouraging we should be encouraging the media to talk to the people that have an alternate viewpoint on things and not just participating in a 24-hour-a-day confirmation bias fuckfest, which is essentially what is going on on the daily. With that being said, I want to talk about the market for a second because if you watched CNBC for any time over the last two or three months as we have been going through the coronavirus mess, the one thing that I heard over and over and over again was that we have to retest our lows. And I don't know, it was Gundlock and it was a bunch of other people on CNBC. Everybody came on and said that they all have to retest their lows. You can be skeptical of the system and you can be cognizant of the fact that the markets really are a rigged game. But you also have to acknowledge the fact that the markets can go much higher before we blow a major head gasket and something goes wrong. I mean, this is where I differ from a lot of other people that talk Austrian school shit because I'm not going to tell you that the blow up is right around the corner, even though it could be. But I'm definitely not certain of that, and I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because there's really not too many historical examples where we've done what we're doing that I can go back and point to, and I I just don't want to make a guess when I'm not sure. We're really participating in an unprecedented experiment that's going to yield unprecedented results. And whether that means you wake up tomorrow and gold is at $10,000 or you wake up tomorrow and the S&P is at $10,000, I don't know. Are any of those a possibility? Sure. Why? Because actual market participation and price discovery are fucking figments of your imagination right now. They don't exist. The Fed's pulling the strings on everything. So everybody that was marched out on the financial media over the last three months that said the market had to retest its lows... None of those people have been proven right so far. And on the contrary, the market still continues to, the S&P, for instance, continues to stay over 3,000, the S&P futures, the SPY is over 300. And I don't know if we're going to get that plunge that everybody keeps talking about. I mean, I hope we do. If we had the trade deal fall apart, like they said last night for three seconds before they walked back what they were saying, Maybe that could have happened. If there's a hot war like Danielle DiMartino Booth was talking about, I don't know, maybe it could happen. But there's a very real possibility that it doesn't happen either. And the line now, actually my friend on Twitter, Cadis Capital, at Cadis Cap, um, I was speaking to him on a DM yesterday and laying out some of my theories to him. And he said, you know, there's a lot of slack right now meaning that the market has gotten way far ahead of the economy. And before I walked upstairs just now to do this podcast, one of the guys, uh, Howard Marks, was on, or they were replaying a clip from Howard Marks, and he was saying the same thing. 
there's a lot of slack right now and the economy has to catch up to the markets. I mean, pardon me, Howard Marks, but I think you're still foolish if you think that the economy has anything to do with the stock market anymore because we've got 40 million people unemployed and we're 10% off of all-time highs. If there was any bigger of an example to prove to you that the markets have been rigged beyond belief and that there's no correlation there anymore, I don't know what there is other than that. But the point I'm trying to make is, as I tweeted this morning, I think that there is a real chance that we start to see a serious recovery in a lot of the underlying data. And I'm going to explain myself here. I put out a tweet this morning saying I think the S&P and gold will probably both go to 4,000 over the next year or two. Um, And of course, this isn't financial advice. And I think the whole thing could fall apart at any point, which is why I like to own my systemic hedges in physical bullion. But the thought process continues to be something that I started talking about in March. And as my listeners know, I mean, we were on the coronavirus back in January before it was even a headline. We knew that it was going to be a shock to the markets. We talked about it all the time. People meet on Twitter, people on my podcast, people that are close to me, we talked about it. And in March, right around the time that Bill Ackman was on CNBC saying that whatever he said, the economy is slipping into the seventh circle of hell and, you know, with a fucking Slayer CD playing in the background. But right about that time, I did a periscope called Being a Contrarian in a Time of a Coronavirus. And one of the points that I brought up that I've spoken about several times is the idea that the virus may have started earlier than we think. It may have came to the United States earlier than we think. I talked about this on my last podcast and on say I talk about it on Twitter all the time. The virus, I think, could have been in the United States maybe in November, in December, if not earlier. I mean, China is telling us November was patient zero. I have the propensity to not believe a word that China says. I basically think of the Chinese government mouthpiece the same way I think of the North Korean government mouthpiece. You ever see those YouTube videos? The guys from Vice did a good one where they go to North Korea and they set up ballrooms for them and say, oh, yes, you know, the people are just about to arrive, you know, and of course... There are no people, and they drive them around in the one BMW that's in the country. Meanwhile, you know, other people are being walked around in horse-drawn carriages. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we got a ton of these BMWs. They're just not on the street. Reminds me a little bit of that. It's obviously not that third world, but that's about the same type of skepticism that I give when I hear something come out of the, you know, Chinese state media. So... And additionally, as I said on my last podcast, there was a report on Fox News that said, hey, this thing may have been out in August. And there was a report this morning I saw that Penn State had put out a study claiming that the initial infection rate of the coronavirus may have been 80 times greater than originally reported. And if you search for Penn State and you search for 80 times Uh, greater or COVID in 80 times, you'll be able to find the study. And uh, Zero Hedge wrote an article on it today, which is the first place that I saw it uh, during the middle of the day today. So you can find it in either spot. But essentially, the study says that there were a significant amount of people that had influenza-like illnesses um, back at the same time that they took a sampling of COVID data and that the influenza-like illnesses mirrored the COVID data and gave the people doing the study the impression that a lot of other illnesses that were being reported around the time were actually COVID, but we didn't know because we didn't have the testing procedures in place, which is something that I've been talking about really since March. I have said that once we get ubiquitous antibody testing and a grasp on you know things like how long we keep the antibodies after we have them, But once we get that data, we'll have a better picture on exactly how far this thing has run its course. What does it mean if this study proves to be accurate? And I'm not saying that I've peer-reviewed it or anything like that. There are a lot of equations and shit in it that I don't understand. A lot of charts that are beyond my pay grade. But what it would mean is, A, that the virus has been here earlier than we thought and that way more people have had it than we have thought which is something that you continue to hear. Oh, I had the worst case of 
fucking walking pneumonia last December. The doctors couldn't figure it out. Or, hey, I felt like shit in the beginning of January. It was the worst flu I ever had. You know, I've heard countless numbers of stories like that. And I also myself, you know, had a fever in early January and had a point where I was having trouble breathing during one of my normal workouts, which is strange because I have pretty good cardio. It means that, and it also means if it's true that the denominator that is used to make up the case fatality rate and the mortality rate is likely much larger than people think, which would make the case fatality rate much lower than people think. And there was another study that was published yesterday uh, that had a Stanford professor who looked at one of the median case fatality rates turned out to be much lower than people had originally predicted. And you're going to start to see the emergence of this kind of data now that uh, now that we are getting widespread testing and one of the reasons that the numbers continue to skyrocket all over the place isn't just because the virus is spreading or has spread. It's because the availability of testing is much bigger, which is why I take so much exception when people say that, oh, we're fucking it up in the United States when the situation is we're really not fucking it up in the United States. We're just doing a good job and getting more testing out there. Yes, there are changes in how the virus spreads depending on our behaviors. We're trying to do what's within reason and what is recommended to mitigate that. But the case fatality rate is going to continue, in my opinion, to go lower with more and more access to information that we have. And that's what I have seen. You know, again, my big worry in January was that the Chinese were hiding something about the fatality rate of this virus. Um, I don't know if they're hiding anything else, but that I don't think is what they were hiding. I think they were hiding the number of infections. I mean, China still claims there's only 90,000 infections worldwide, which is insane considering it's a country of 1.3 billion people, okay? It's a country four or five times larger than the United States in terms of population, and yet they only have 90,000 infections. Folks, if the bullshit meter isn't going off on that one, I'm not sure what's going to do it for you. That's a perfect example. Yeah, we've got BMWs all over the place. (laughs) The party is just about to arrive here in the ballroom. Unfortunately, you can't stay. It's a very private party. We're going to have to usher you out of here very quickly. By the way, we already have a bus waiting for you, and it's the only bus you're allowed to get on. And the bus schedule looks like this. When the guest steps outside, the bus arrives, and it takes you to your destination, and then that bus goes back to the garage where it is never used again and the driver goes back to his actual job which is hand farming rice one grain at a time it's one of those situations unfortunately why is all this bullshit and nonsense important it's important because if we find out that the case fatality rate is much lower what we may be saying and all of this is predicated on what we find out about the antibodies what we find out about the long-standing effects of the virus, data that we just don't have yet because we haven't had the time. We haven't had the time to collect what happens a year after somebody is confirmed with an infection because you need a year to do that. But based on what we know now, there is a situation where in six months from now, once we have a vaccine, and I do believe we will, that we look back on this and we say, hey, you know, what we did was good because we there were a lot of unknowns at the time. But knowing what we know today, might we have done a little bit less looking back and might we have been a little less freaked out and paranoid and scared, which there's no blame in that. Everybody should have been freaked out and paranoid and scared. That's a great way to get people's fucking attention. And as you know from me screaming and yelling and ranting and raving in January and February, that was the purpose of that was to get people's attention, to try to get people to understand that this was coming here if it wasn't already here and that it was going to be something that was going to have a serious effect not only on the market, but also on our way of life. So in six months from now, if we look back, months is the word I was trying to say, if in six months from now, we look back And we realize that this was a little less of a big deal than we thought. Still a bigger pain in the ass than the flu. Still glad that we took all the measures that we did to protect the elderly and protect the vulnerable. And certainly 
Everybody has vulnerable and immunosuppressed or elderly people in their family. So it's a good thing that we did those things. But what it could mean is that we could be in for a tailwind of epic proportions for the market. Because if you're going to just descend into the Keynesian bubble here with me for a second, what could December or January look like? It could look like we have a vaccine that we know works. That in and of itself is limit up the day it happens, in my opinion. That's the first thing. And that means we will also have an underlying economy that is going to recover much quicker, a travel and leisure industry that's going to recover much quicker. I mean, for all intents and purposes, in my opinion, I think those will be close to V-shaped recoveries when that happens. I mean, not to speak of the fucked up capital structure on a lot of these companies post-virus, but I think that we could see a strong whiplash back to semi-normalcy. And lest we forget coming out of December and heading into January, we still are going to have significant quantitative easing. We have the Fed backstopping the corporate bond market. We have unlimited money printing and we have 0% rates that they're not going to be able to change for a long, long time. They're not going to want to change them first off, but they're not going to be able to because the amount of debt outstanding is going to be so absolutely pornographic that one basis point tick up in the federal funds rate is going to feel like the economy getting a stone cold stunner off the top ropes. It's going to be is going to have a profound materially adverse effect as a lawyer would write in a 10k or as i would say it's going to be an absolute shit show at the fuck factory so the point is heading into next year we could ostensibly really have a vaccine we could be putting the coronavirus for the most part behind us but for what we don't know about the long-term effects and things of that nature We could have the tailwind of very dovish monetary policy and as if the market gave a shit, which it doesn't, an actual economic recovery happening at the same time. And that could be a prescription for new new all-time highs in 2021. Of course, lest we forget, we could wake up any random Wednesday and gold could decide to double. I mean, there's really no, and and the S&P can decide, okay, I care about fundamentals now, so I'm going back to, you know, the SPY is going back to 120 overnight or something just broke. That's when they just really, they plug the New York Fed computers in at that point and run a emergency program that they have on a flash drive to prevent that from happening, that type of flash crash. But that's not to say that it's not possible. I mean, we have a rigged economy using rigged macroeconomic data with a presidential administration now that watches the S&P futures. And all you need to do is watch what happened last night to understand that. Navarro came out and said the trade deal is over because China didn't tell us about the coronavirus pandemic on time. They signed the trade deal first, which, by the way, that's a very valid criticism of China and one that Danielle DiMartino Booth brought up on Friday when I spoke to her. That's a very valid criticism. I was very impressed. I was happy that the market was going to get smacked a little bit. And I was happy that we were standing up to China. The S&P futures or the Dow futures dropped 400 points in the span of 15 or 20 minutes. And about five minutes after that, we hurriedly got a correction from Navarro saying, did I say that? I didn't know that. I'm only the United States trade representative. What the fuck would I know about the trade deal, right? And President Trump hastily correcting him via Twitter. Navarro meant to say everything was good, not the trade deal is over. Well, it's like, how do you fuck that one up? It's either over or this is like, remember when Larry King asked Jerry Seinfeld if he had been canceled when they were talking about the last episode of Seinfeld? And Larry King's like, "Uh, it was your decision to end the show, right? You weren't canceled. And Jerry Seinfeld's like, canceled? He's like, are you under the impression that I was canceled? And Larry King's like, well, I'm just asking. And Seinfeld goes, well, there's a very big difference between being number one and being canceled. (laughs) And that's like exactly how I felt last night. There's a very big difference between the trade deal being over 
and going fantastic, which is what Larry Kudlow was saying this morning. I mean, how do you fuck that up? Hey, the $2 billion is either in the bank or it isn't, right? These are things called big lies. They call them big lies because they're so big that people won't even believe their lies. So they just keep going on until they hit some kind of mathematical terminus or some kind of karmic terminus. At some point, they just unravel. For Madoff, it was the market crashing at the wrong time and redemptions. But at some point, the shit show has to stop. And last night was a good microcosm. We have an administration that that only cares about the market. And we have a market that has loosened restrictions on companies to make it extraordinarily easy for them to commit fraud. Think about all of the checks and balances that you thought were involved in being a public company. And then think about the fact that this company didn't have $2 billion than it said it did, but made it through audits and was defended by regulators. And the short sell, they were hiring spies to go out and look at the short sellers. They had all this gusto behind them. It's like, nah, the cash just wasn't there. The emperor has no clothes. And if it can be that stunningly obvious and nobody pick up on it, is it any wonder that I want more discourse from Austrian economists? Is it any wonder that I want more discourse from market skeptics? Because essentially what many of us are arguing and what I said in October 2019 during my speech in Las Vegas in between beers was that there are one of two options. One is the Fed knows exactly what it's doing and they have found the promised land, the course of no consequence that allows us to live prosperously regardless of the underpinnings of the economy. They have solved the greatest equation, you know, like Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind writing on the fucking windows at Oxford University or wherever he was, right? They've solved the greatest equation. It's like E equals MC squared for the economy that allows the rich to get richer and politicians to continue to get elected and the wheels to not fall off the economy at any given point while maintaining homeostasis through a multitude of various, I don't know what you want to call it, methods of fuckery, or they're just lying and they have no fucking idea what they're doing. Or it's a giant con. It's a giant confidence game. Wirecard's $2 billion was a confidence game. Everybody thought, Kathy Wood thought when she was buying Wirecard, which she got shellacked on, she was probably thinking the $2 billion has to be there. It's such a huge number. How could it not be there? <laughs> the sell side analyst, if you follow at Donut Shorts on Twitter, put out one of the Wirecard sell side analyst reports from after the Financial Times piece. By the way, Dan McCrum is a fucking awesome dude. He was one of the first journalists I ever talked to, like five, six years ago. Actually, he was the first person to reveal that I was the person writing under, quote, the Raven. I wanted to give that story to somebody cool, and Dan McCrum wrote it for Alphaville. It's called Herbalife Bear Steps Out of the Shadows or something like that. But um, Dan McCrum put out, you know, some fantastic work, as did Roddy Boyd on this. And the Wirecard sell-side analyst responded, fake news. That was it. That's what they put in their report. We think it's fake news. It's like, actually, motherfucker, what's fake is the $2 billion in the bank, okay? One side is faking. Usually, it's not the short sellers. I can count on one hand the number of times that short sellers, who are, again, often the most thoughtful people in the business, have come out and alleged some intricate, complex accounting scheme that hasn't actually been happening. They don't just construct a whole big thesis about a company for fun. It involves doing real work, and they have real forensic accountants look at it, and they really read the filings. Again, as I said earlier, oftentimes short sellers know the businesses better than the companies themselves. Hey, did you know you had a subsidiary in fucking Luxembourg where you guys import three musketeer bars? 
No? Well, you do. So check out page 97B, footnote 4 of your annual report. (laughs) But what you don't realize is that sometimes the person making shit up is actually the company. Sometimes the emperor doesn't actually have any clothes. And that is exactly what I and other Austrian economist type people, I'm definitely not an economist, but what I and other people that I follow, that I listen to, your Jim Grants, your Bill Fleckensteins, that's exactly what they're alleging. They're alleging that the Fed emperor has no clothes. And what's going to happen? And Daniel DiMartito Booth, again, on Friday, worked for the Fed for nine years, says it's all bullshit. Well, that would be like Wirecard's ex-CFO coming out and saying, hey, had a great time, just so everybody in the public domain knows the cash isn't there, and then people just blowing him off. Well, this guy's a crackpot. Well, he's got an MBA from Harvard. Well, he's still a crackpot. All right, we're just not going to listen. Fake news. Fake news. That was the guy's actual response in his sell side note. Fake news. Fake news. What do you mean fake news? Just ignore everything on the paper. Ignore what they say. Doesn't mean anything. Market manipulation. What do you mean market manipulation? Do you have evidence that the market is being manipulated? No, no, just saying it. Just doing the company's bidding in hopes that we can do investment banking business with them in the future. And that is exactly how the dog shit popsicle is made in the financial industry. Moral of the story. Sometimes with companies, the emperor has no clothes. Sometimes with the central banks, I think they have no clothes either. And the Keynesian bubble may continue to go further. We might rip to all-time highs next year, especially if some of my prognostications about the coronavirus are correct. Or we could wake up any day and all hell could be breaking loose. So that I know covers a wide range of of outcomes, but that is specifically why at the beginning of my podcast, I inform you to do your research elsewhere and that this is not financial advice. I'm the fuck out of here. Everybody have a good night. Peace.